All right, this is our first episode of Theology Thursday from uh, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Connection Church in Danville. We're bringing this to you. And on the podcast today, I have uh, Dr. Donnie Mathis. Dr. Donnie Mathis has his MDiv and PhD, both from Southern Seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. That's right. You need to get that right. That's right. And if everybody can see Rupp Arena in the background there, uh, Dr. Mathis is a huge Kentucky fan. He's from Kentucky, obviously. Got a did my undergraduate at UK also. That's right. You did your undergraduate. And you did it in uh, engineering, right? Or math? Mechanical engineering. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. He is the director uh, of the Center for Faculty Excellence at North Greenville University. He is an elder at the church at Cherrydale there in Greenville, South Carolina. He's married to Amber and has two kids, Trace and Hallie. Uh, Donnie has co-authored the book Seven Arrows with Matt Rogers, which is a great, uh, I'm going to plug that real quick. It's a great practical practical resource for how to read, interpret, and apply scripture. Uh, Matt was a general editor, and Donnie was the New Testament editor for the Seven Arrows Study Bible, which takes uh, passages from uh, the Christian Standard, I think you said, the, the Holman Christian Standard. It's in the Christian Standard Bible, yeah. Yeah, Christian Standard Bible, and walks you through the Seven Arrows and some of those passages. So uh, I'm delighted to have Dr. Mathis on for our first guest. Uh, Dr. Mathis was actually one of my profs at North Greenville, where I graduated. It's been a decade uh, this this May, crazy. Which, is, which is crazy. Um, but it's thoroughly enjoyed insane. my time there. And uh, Dr. Mathis and all the other guys there in the Christian Studies Department uh, were huge in that regard to making my experience there phenomenal. So welcome, Dr. Mathis. Glad to be here. Glad to be awesome. Here. So one of the things that one of my goals in Theology Thursday is to uh, really get the best of uh, practical theology, of biblical theology, of systematic theology. And maybe at some point we'll, we'll kind of walk through that, uh, those definitions later on in another episode, but really to connect our, our brains being renewed in our minds, which is Romans 12, 1, by thinking well about the faith. And then how do we live that out? How do we take theology and make it accessible to folks so they can walk out their faith in a way that uh, honors God and honors his word? And so today on... On this podcast, we're going to be exploring particularly the, the, the narrative in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, where as we approach, we're approaching Palm Sunday here in a few weeks, we're approaching Easter, it's coming on quickly. I wanted to take this time to really think about and have a conversation with Dr. Mathis about how do we think about Jesus' passion, um, his conversations with the Jewish leaders, all the things that are happening in that storm cloud that's gr- that grows right before he goes to Jerusalem. And so um, I'm going to just, what I would like for you, Dr. Mathis, if you could, could you just give us, as you think about when we approach Palm Sunday, as we approach Easter, uh, just talk a little bit about the significance of what the passion narrative really is for our faith. Well, it's at the heart of our faith. Uh, Everything hinges on this last week of Jesus' life. Um, The as we build up in that last week to the the point where Jesus is betrayed and he and he dies in the place of sinners and, you know if you look at the the way that it's uh, conveyed in each of the gospels they're they're each unique this is one of the interesting and, and really beautiful things about what uh, what God did in inspiring the the various authors to write is they're they're all t- telling the same story they're telling it historically in an historically accurate fashion and they're all telling it differently. Now, one of the things that, that can sometimes happen if folks uh, approach the New Testament from a place of suspicion uh, or doubt 
uh, is that they would try to exploit some of these differences in telling to try to undermine the, the truthfulness of what's being said. Uh, like if you were to turn on your, uh, the History Channel, everybody's cooped up these days with uh, quarantines and things like that. Like you turn on the History Channel and, and they're going to try to exploit those types of things uh, to, to undermine the truthfulness of what's being described. But, but I think that one of the things that would be really helpful for us as we come to this time of year and as we look at each of the unique tellings of the story with their similarities and with their differences is that if we uh, approach them from a place of empathy uh, and, and consider each one of them on their own and think about the, the fact that you have uh, these authors who have a theological perspective and are trying to teach particular people uh, important things, that's why you're going to see things framed uniquely, various things emphasized differently, uh, because they're, they're writing to audiences. They're conveying this not just for um, sort of bare history or just kind of like Joe Friday on Dragnet, like just the facts. Like this is, this is shaped for a purpose that doesn't undermine the truthfulness of what they're saying. In fact, I think if you look at it from one perspective, the, the fact that you have in this very important, significant literature, these differences kind of, I think, uh, in some ways would, would lead us to recognize, particularly with the resurrection narratives, the truthfulness of what we have, because it's not like a group of people got together and they said, let's get our story straight to perpetuate a lie. They're telling it from different perspectives, emphasizing different things. And so in each of them, in various ways, the authors are going to demonstrate that when Jesus goes to the cross, he's dying in the place of sinners. Mm. So Luke brings it out really directly uh, with the case of Barabbas. He's going to set, and, and you see it as well in Matthew and Mark, I think maybe a little more directly in Luke, that Barabbas and Jesus are set up as Jesus is innocent, Barabbas is guilty. No one doubts that Barabbas is guilty, and Luke is going to go out of his way uh, in a way that is different, honestly, than Matthew and Mark and John, but particularly Matthew and Mark, to emphasize the fact that Jesus is innocent of everything that is taking place. And so there's this reality of unjust suffering that he's enduring, that then he's going to die very literally in the place of Barabbas. And then along with that, in the Gospel of John, uh, you've got in leading up to the, the death of Jesus uh, in chapter 11, chapter 12, uh, the, 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 the Sanhedrin is gathered together and Caiaphas, who is the high priest at this particular point, is going to say that it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And so John's going to bring out this fact that Jesus is dying in the place of his people. And so then along with that, you're going to see then the resurrection narratives and each of the gospels is going to frame those differently because they have different goals in what they're, what they're doing. And you're going to have the resurrection narratives that are pointing to the fact that, that Jesus has physically bodily been raised from the dead. And, and Luke goes out of his way as we, as we dig into the Luke and narrative, Luke is going to make it very clear that this, uh, particularly for a Gentile audience that, that might think, that resurrection or life after death is, is purely a sort of 
spiritual, non-physical, ghost-like state, Mm -hmm. which is what you would find in Greco-Roman writings, like in Homer and places like that, that, that it's not that that there's a physical bodily existence, like like Luke goes out of his way to see to say uh, that that Jesus, you know, in in a pretty famous way in various gospels, Jesus is going to ask them to you know look at his hands and feet. That his death has even in this resurrected body has left the marks of the death, and uh, and then he says that he ate fish with them, and and you know, ghosts don't eat fish. Like, right. you know, I remember when I was a kid and Ghostbusters came out and, and the ghost poured the whole plate of sausages into its mouth. It just went right through. Well, that's not <laughs> happening with Jesus. He's physically bodily been raised. Now things are different because he also disappears. Like, right. Kind of cool. Um, yeah. But they're all told differently for different purposes. And, uh, and I think that is in the end, if you're looking from a place of empathy that, this could point to the fact that this really did happen because they haven't told it in exactly the same way. It's, it's not like, you know, with your children or with your, 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 your athletes on your team, when they get into trouble, they get together, they get their story straight. They tell it all exactly the same way, uh, which is a good sign that they're lying to you. These are all different. It starts with women who wouldn't really even be allowed to testify in court as being the the main witnesses. And Luke even brings out that, by and large, when they came and said, the tomb is empty, we met these men in dazzling clothes, and they still didn't believe. Right. I mean, Peter goes to the tomb. He's the only one in Luke's gospel. Uh, he emphasizes Peter probably to set up for the book of Acts in some ways. Um, so there are folks like us who are shocked and crushed by this thing. They're you know, we can probably identify they're holed up in the upper room. They don't, they're hiding, they're afraid. Um, and, um, and then he shows up alive and it changes everything. And one of the things I think that, that before we, you know, dig into some more specifics that I think is really interesting that you, with Luke and Acts together that we can see is that, I mean, think about the picture that we see as we sort of walk through this of the disciples in the last week of Jesus' life. They're particularly as they get to the arrest, they're fearful, they're afraid, and they scatter. Like, um, you know, and and we have the you know the classic description of that with Peter's denial of Jesus three times, and his fear of a of a servant girl and the people that are there uh, in the courtyard of the high priest. And then, then we sort of jump forward into the second chapter of the book of Acts. And now that the spirit has come, he stands up and preaches at Pentecost, 3000 people are saved. Then in chapter three, they go to the temple and the man is healed. And this leads to the conflict, the first conflict with the religious leaders in chapter four. And, and then you know, they're arrested in the middle of proclaiming the message at the beginning of chapter four, uh, before they get to conclude and call people to, con- to, to be saved. And you've got thousands that are saved. You can really read that as 5,000 more or 2,000 more. But regardless, there's a lot of people, lot of people are converted, yeah. even as the, the preacher is drug off to jail. And then in chapters four and five, we get Peter and John arrested, then all the disciples arrested. And we see this boldness that they have, you know, the, the very same guy who just a little bit earlier 
had been afraid of a servant girl and other random people stands before the Sanhedrin in, in maybe the very same place where Jesus was. We don't know if it was the same courtroom setting, but it's the same group of people. And, and, and this is in the span of two months, roughly, maybe a little more than that. He goes from denying Jesus to saying, whether it's right in the sight of God to do what you say or what God says, we're going to do what God says. And whatever you do to us, we're going to proclaim that salvation is not found in anyone other than Jesus, that he is the deliverer of Israel. He is the savior that the prophets had talked about. And we're going to keep preaching it. You can kill us if you want to, but we're going to keep doing that. And um, the only way that you can get from Peter in the gospel of Luke to Peter in the, in the book of Acts is for Jesus to have physically bodily been raised from the dead. Yep. that he's conquered death. Uh, you know, um, the idea that you would get like in the, the early 20th century where they were trying to explain away the miracles that Jesus was like, you know, uh, to, to use the language of, um, of the princess bride, that he was only mostly dead and been right. dead all day, right. like that, that he was laying in the tomb and in the cool of the tomb, he woke up and all of that nonsense, like a beaten, broken Jesus that didn't actually physically bodily rise from the dead is not going to inspire that kind of proclamation and, right. and his resurrected power, the fact that he is resurrected and now reigns at the right hand in the way Luke says it in the, in his gospel is the right hand of the power of God is that he's still reigning and ruling. His power is given to them. Like he says in Acts one, eight, and as we get into the story of Acts, the world is turned upside down, mm-hmm. not because of the power of these frail disciples, but because of the power of a risen king who's created a whole new world in right. his resurrection. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Let me, let me zoom in a little bit. That's a great okay. big 10,000 picture view of the passion. Let me ask you specifically. That was a great segue talking about Acts. One yeah. of the one of the, one of the core pieces when we look at scripture, we come to any text. One of the things we want to look at from an interpretive and, and standpoint is literary context. And you mentioned Absolutely. it how each each author, each gospel author, has a particular vision, a particular audience, a particular angle. When we come to Luke, many people hopefully know, maybe they don't don't know that Luke Acts is a two volume narrative. But there is some debate right. about how much we allow the narrative and the structure of Acts to, to come into play when we interpret Luke. Could you talk about the relationship interpretive from an interpretive standpoint between Luke and Acts? You have the thing that, that oftentimes you'll, you'll, you'll come in into as you sort of look through both of the books is um, that there's not a single unifying thing, one thing that ties the two together. Um, there are lots of overlapping themes um, like the sovereign rule of God in history, that all of this is unfolding according to God's plan that you will see in Luke's gospel an emphasis on the inclusion of the Gentiles that you see shades of it, um, allusions to it uh, in the other gospels, like even in the gospel of Matthew where where Matthew is by and large, it seems writing to uh, a Jewish audience that is going to have a a framework and a concept of what Messiahship is. 
um, the, the, the long story of the Bible, you know, he begins with about the most Jewish thing you can think of in a genealogy, but that genealogy goes back to Abraham. Luke's going to have a genealogy and his genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, which is, is one clue along with a ton of others that we're going to see throughout the book of, of allusions to and preparation for this mission to the Gentiles. Yeah. We see it even in this last week of Jesus life. Uh, and you see it in the gospel of John. You see it in, even in Matthew, when we get to the end, it's that you're taking, you're, you're making disciples of all the nations, not just of the Jews. And, and so part of the unfolding of the first part of the book of Acts is the, the recognition and realization of what that means in real wor- world terms. Because mm. when you think about it, the first seven full chapters of the book of Acts, they're still in Jerusalem. They've been told Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, but they're there in Jerusalem and it takes the death of Stephen and the persecution of Saul, the Pharisee, who in some ways, I guess you could even say, uh, is not just responsible for the Gentile mission, but the mission to the Samaritans because he was chasing people and wanting to kill them. Right. Um, so you've got that unfolding reality that God is in charge of this whole thing, that you have this closing of one story and the launching of a new story. But these two stories are interconnected. So like one of the things that, that I think is fascinating uh, and uh, would be great benefit to folks uh, as, as you read yourselves in the Gospel of Luke and then into the book of Acts is to take really um, to take advantage of the cross references that are in mm-hmm. your, your Bible. Because even though Luke doesn't say it is. Uh, written or he says that regularly. He doesn't use the fulfillment language like Matthew does. Like Matthew says, like particularly in the first two chapters, you see it repeated over and over and over again. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I call my son or something like that. And Luke is going to use that fulfillment language. But one of the things that as you, as you dig into the gospel of Luke and as you sort of pay attention to those cross references um, that, you know, and honestly, there's times when you, you might even assume that your, your students or, or I might even assume that you would know what those cross references are for. But, but the fact of the matter is, if somebody hasn't explained to you, so the, what these are, are trying to point out now they're not inerrant. <laughs> they're they're right. not like the scriptures themselves. There are going to be some that you're going to sort of turn your head like, well, oh, that's weird. Uh, that may not exactly work. But what they're trying to do is to help us see illusions to other places in the scripture. Sometimes they're pointing forward in the New Testament. Like if you're in the gospels, maybe point forward to, to Paul, like they're trying to help us to see how this interconnects with something in one of the letters. Um, but particularly as we see references and allusions, even beyond the direct quotations, and we see a lot of quotations, even in the gospel of Luke, that there are these allusions to the Old Testament where Luke is trying to make it really clear that it, that this is the turning point of history. Mm. This is the center point in the story of the world. So you've got this Jewish story that is filled with problems. Uh, you've got this, uh, you even see like in the interactions of Jesus with the, the Sadducees uh, related to the resurrection um, that he goes back and makes reference to the law that even in the law, Sadducees said that was the foundation for their lives. And, and as a result, they said that 
there was no such thing as the resurrection. Luke goes out of his way, though, to tell his readers who might not have known that. They don't believe in the resurrection. That's really significant for the story that's about to happen. They're asking Jesus about something they don't even believe in. Right. And then Jesus turns the table and says, all right, you say that you base your whole life on the the first five books you you think the rest of the old testament is scripture but really you're going to draw and build your theology on this little this little part the single part of the canon of the old testament you're going to build your theology off that and say in contrast to the pharisees that there is no resurrection and he's saying well look at what is said there in exodus when god says i am the god of abraham isaac and jacob like that they're the fact that a, that he makes reference to these long dead people says that death is not the end. And so then they ask this sort of illegitimate question about resurrection. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not even like, he's not even going to deal with this. And so then at the heart of this turning of the story, this ending of a, of a story of death and destruction in Israel, Israel is called to be God's people. Israel is called in Genesis 12 and 15 with Abraham to be the one through whom all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. But if you read the Old Testament, they're given this, they're given this calling. The law then comes to regulate life. How is an unholy people going to live in the presence of a holy God? And uh that's why the law was given. The law didn't make Israel God's son. Like as we read the Exodus narrative, you know, in Exodus four, you get the whole of the Exodus narrative foreshadowed because Israel is God's son. He's chosen them. There's people. The law is given to regulate life so that this God who comes on the mountain with fire and their boundaries so that people are not destroyed. He, he wants to be near to his people, but their sinfulness and his holiness don't combine. And so what the, in the unfolding of the story, you have the law to regulate life, but in Deuteronomy, we get to chapter 30, you know, after having sort of outlined the the blessings and the curses as they enter the land in chapter 30, verse six, Moses goes out of his way to say, like, you're going to be scattered in verses one through five. You're going to be scattered to the ends of the earth. You're going to be destroyed because you're going to know all the curses. You're going to know the blessing of living in the land for a time, but you're going to know all the curses. The, the thing that, that, that God said to, to Abraham about the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's why you're going to have this period. You're not ever going to have the land that I've promised. Well, the same land that's going to vomit out, this is the language in Leviticus, it's very graphic, is going to vomit out the pagans will vomit you out too if you become pagans. And that's the story that practices. And that, that's the story, to your point, that's the story that Jesus is walking into. Right? That's exactly the, right. The Sadducees, yes. so, the Pharisees, they're living in the light of they're under the that's pagan exactly rule. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that that is that's 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 difficult, you know, in a in a fashion in walking into the gospels is you've got really two things going on at the same time. You've got the historical reality of what's happening in the first century. And then you have what the gospel writer is doing to shape that, to Mm. teach something and apply it to his readers. And I think that that should be really instructive to us, even as we talk about this, uh, these matters is that from the very beginning, as the story was first being retold orally and then being written down, 
it's just the same thing as what we're doing today. We're just, we're just explaining what they were explaining to another group of people. Mm-hmm. That from the, the get-go, this was, a, this was a story of Jesus that was completing the story of Israel. And one of the things that I think we can see in Luke is he's making it really clear that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. As the king, and this is king of the Jews language is used in each of the gospels, but as the king, he is the representative of the people. And as the king, he can stand in the place of the people. He's the representative uh, of the nation. So like uh, to the people of the world, in, in a way, the president of the United States is the representative of who the United States is or what the mm-hmm. United States represents to the whole world. Now, we can, we can argue about it at any given time, regardless of who the president is, how much that's an accurate re- presentation sure. of reality. But that's the perception. In the case of Jesus, in, he yeah, is the reality. He is yeah. the true Israelite. Because that's the covenant language in the in the old yeah, covenant. The, the king in a covenantal relationship, the king represents even in non-Jewish world, the king represented nations and covenants. And so as we get into this new covenant reality, Jesus right, represents absolutely. the covenant. He's inaugurating a new covenant. And you'll see, like in the telling of the birth of Jesus, this uh, sort of echoing of David's story in various ways, that you know, this idea. Uh, in, in chapters one and two in particular, and certainly leading up to the birth of Jesus, as you see this interaction between uh, Elizabeth and Mary and what's told to Mary, and then what's told even to the shepherds, is that there is this uh, sort of underlying current of Second Samuel 7 mm-hmm, right. that's, that's being fulfilled. Like we've been looking for, uh, John will bring this out significantly, I think, this prophet like Moses, whom the people will actually listen to. So think about the language of my sheep hear my voice and I call them by name and they listen to me. Like, I think that there are some echoes of Deuteronomy that, that start to, to come up and out of the, the page of like the, the, the true Israel uh, is going to listen to this one like Moses, who's greater than Moses. So like in, mm-hmm. in the festivals that are there starting in chapter five, I think, with Sabbath and you go into Passover in chapter six, and then you have um, uh, the feast of tabernacles in seven and and on into eight, like you've got this reality where Jesus is all of the story of Israel that's told in the feasts, recounting, uh, you know, the Sabbath to keep it holy, uh, then Passover. And then the, which, you know, obviously we're going to see here in Luke as well, in this last week of Jesus' life, and then into the Feast of Tabernacles, which by the time of Jesus' life had become associated with their wandering in the wilderness, and they light up the temple, uh, you know, burning in the oil lamps, the the soiled garments of the of the the priests from the last year. Like you've got this, like the temple sits there as the light of the world. This is the place where God reigns and rules in the midst of His people, and Jesus is no, I'm the light of the world. Right. Would this you is say, a representation. I am the real thing. Would you say, I think for people to really, I think sometimes people, they struggle to really understand the conflict. Why are the Jewish leaders so annoyed at first? And then they see Jesus as a threat. I think for people to really understand that when Jesus was saying that his program for the kingdom is it, he's saying that everybody else's program is not it. And I think 
when you talk yeah. about this, yeah, when you talk about this identity of, of the true Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, they all had their own vision for how God was right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so Absolutely. I think for people to really understand that that hasn't changed, that the, the kingdom is still trying to be taken by violence in a lot of ways. And it's At our endeavor to get back the Jesus program for the kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. That is that. That's really an important thing uh, to recognize is that there is a there is a there's a spiritual dimension to what's going on historically mm. in the first century, for sure. There is a political dimension that's going on to this. So, like in, in John's gospel, they say that that if we let Jesus after the raising of Lazarus. If we let Jesus keep going on from doing these kinds of things, all the people are going to follow after them, after him, and and we're going to lose our title essentially mm -hmm. and our authority, and yep. that's something we can't bear. And so there, there is there, there are personal animosities, there are theological animosities because you know the Pharisees believe the kingdom is going to come in a particular way. Uh, right. They're looking for God to intervene. They, you know, like, like Saul the Pharisee, they're trying to push Israel to practical obedience to the law. Like their, their goal is laudable in, yeah, in a exactly. sense. Like they're trying, they recognize in the unfolding of the story that Israel got into the mess that they're in of exile. And, and, you know, and I would contend, and I think you can see it in the gospel of Luke, that they're in this protracted exile, even in the first century, like with, with the return of Ezra and Nehemiah, yeah. I think you can make a really strong case that even though they're in the land, the things the prophets said, the pre-exilic and exilic prophets, and really even post-exilic prophets, the things that they're saying about God returning to his people, about the giving of the spirit, the forgiveness of sins, these are all sort of interwoven together and then you go in Ezra and Nehemiah and you realize that when they go back, you know, this is one of the things the prophet said, there's going to be a streaming of people from all over the world back to Jerusalem to worship the one true and living God. Uh, that would include the Gentiles. Now, in the Pharisees' view, it's sort of at the point of a sword kind of coming right. back to Jerusalem. Um, but you have this streaming back, this giving the spirit, this reigning and ruling of God from Temple Mount. And they rebuild the temple, they repent of their sins, they dedicate this temple, and the folks that had seen the Davidic temple or, or Solomonic they're, they're temple, crying. Me, yeah, they're, they're crying because it's just a shadow of what it had formerly been. And, and then when they dedicate it, the glory of God doesn't fall like it That's did right. in the days of Solomon. That's exactly the spirit right. is not there. And, uh, it, you know, so... And, and Ezekiel makes it really clear, the glory of God's left. That's right. You know, like in Jeremiah, they're saying, temple Lord, temple Lord. Well, yeah, there's a building there, but God's left. Yeah. And Ezekiel makes that really clear that the glory of God leaves. And so in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, the glory of God doesn't return. And they're talking about this repentance and they're still celebrating. Like we can't miss the celebrating part, but there's a, there's kind of this angst and, mm. um, there's a tension. Just sort of, there's a tension of we're living here, but except for the period of the Maccabeans, they're under the thumb of the Romans. And, uh, and even then you wonder, like, were they just like, were, were the external powers just ignoring them at this particular point in time? Uh, after the fall of Alexander the Great's empire, uh, you know, 
you've got all of this angst, you know, and then Herod steps in, he builds this temple thinking that it's going to, you know, get all kinds of sort of public support for him. You have this, this now wonder of the ancient Near Eastern world. Right. In fact, I can actually use it as my Zoom background. I actually have it in there. <laughs> um, you know, um, that, that you've got this wonder of the ancient Near Eastern world and, um, and, but yet when he comes out, the people throw fruit at him right. because the, because he's taxed them to death to pay for it. So you've yeah, got this wonder of the world, but at the same time, it's, it's the, the glory of God still not fallen. The temple leadership, the Sadducees are, they're the status quo. Like they're right. the, you know, the Pharisees, uh, they're wanting to bring change from within. They're working with these enemies. And that's sort of where you see this enemy of my enemy is my friend come in with the Pharisees and Sadducees in the last week of Jesus' life. And you've got the Essenes who've sort of withdrawn. Uh, they're, they're believing God's going to intervene and throw over the corrupt people. Uh, you know, the, the, the Sadducees would be sort of the, the, the political elite of Jerusalem, uh, you know, if you wanted to put it sort of in modern terms, uh, the Pharisees were trying to drain the swamp from within. The, the <laughs> Essenes were hoping that, that God would just zap them all. And then you have this sort of underlying revolutionary current that, that, that's there that they want to they fight. They're the malicious. They're, they're, they're the malicious that's right. of today. Yeah. That's right. And I, and I think in the end, what we'll see is that, that Jesus dies sort of as a, well, he dies not sort of as a political revolutionary, even though it's clear to everyone that's looking at it honestly. Yeah, and I, Dr. Mathis, I really want to pull on that thread. I want to sure. pull on that thread in just a second. I want to get there with Barabbas okay. particularly, because I think, I think I'm no Greek scholar. I learned from you, actually. So, but I will say that I think Luke uses a very specific word for Barabbas. Yes. That, that, but, but he also uses, Luke uses that. So let's, let's jump in here. You're talking about the temple. For a lot of people, when we when we see Jesus in, in this is in Luke, um, I think Luke twenty one, I believe, okay, is where he visits the temple. Is that right, Luke twenty or twenty? Yeah, as yeah. as I was reading over this, like I read through this last week, this morning, just to to prep, I was really struck by how, in comparison, like when. Like in comparison to Matthew and Luke, when Jesus enters, there's a bit more discussion of his visit to the temple. Luke keeps that pretty short. Uh, initially, he's going to come back around to some of those themes a bit later on. But I, mm -hmm. I found it really striking what he does emphasize. Uh, and uh, even in that. So where where in 21 are you talking about? I'm sorry. I'm in the end of 19. I was mistaken. Okay, end of 19. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Got it. So when he, you were just talking about, I think this is significant for people just to get a framework for understanding how the, how the Jewish story is coming to an end yeah. and how this new, the, what I would call the Jesus story, uh, the new age is breaking in. When we talk about Jesus entering the temple, you know, some Bible headings say, and even mine here says that Jesus cleansed the temple. What you're saying, yeah. though, that's not yeah. a good description, right? Of what uh, he's no, actually not doing. at all. So, so let, let's talk about that a little bit. So when Jesus comes to the temple, and this is a bit more explained. In fact, let's just, let me, let, let's look at it in the Gospel of Luke, starting like in verse 41. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is, this is unique to Luke. Um, 
saying, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace. So keep that word peace in mind as we, as we look at this. And as you read through this last week of Jesus' life on your own, that word peace is going to appear in various places. And I think it's really important to keep in mind, not just sort of the, the theological ramifications of that, but also sort of the historical and political ones too. But now they are hidden from your eyes. So there's, there's a tumult coming. There is, there is war on the horizon. He's going to talk about this uh, in, uh, a little bit later on. Uh, and, but now they're hidden from your eyes. So the way for peace is, is closed to you. Mm. And he's talking about himself, ultimately. And then, he, and then we get this sort of prelude uh, to what's going to be discussed later on in the week uh, in, 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 a, bit, a bit later. So uh, I can't remember the reference off the top of my head. So anyway, so for the days will come upon you when, when your armies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. This is getting to the destruction of the temple later on because you did not know the time of your visitation. So mm. uh, talk about that. Link, talk, talk about yeah. visitation there. You may be where you were going to, but I really want you to so hit that. This so this time of your visitation is this, um, like the cross-reference in my Bible uh, is saying the time of your visitation could be a reference back to Daniel 9, um, uh, th so what, what you have here, I think, and, and this is certainly something that folks can dispute and disagree with, but, but I think what you're, what you're having is Jesus comes to Jerusalem, um, fulfilling very clearly Zechariah nine, right. Where Zechariah talks about the, that the, that the King will ride in on the back of a donkey, uh, humble and mounted on a donkey. And you have this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and I think John also will make reference to it as well, uh, that you have Jesus riding into Jerusalem as a king. He explicitly prepares the way uh, for this entry. He is like, this is planned out. This is public theater. Uh, it's very different to what, yeah. Think it's very different than what he was doing previously. That's such. That's why this is so interesting. Is that he was so, especially in Mark, we get the Mansiatic secret of where he's been very aloof. Yeah. He's been withdrawing back into Galilee, away from Jerusalem. Right and here, he kind of sets his face, as Luke says. And, yeah, and I want to. He goes out yeah, of his way to say that. Out yeah. of his way to say it, and, and it's a visit. This visitation, as you're saying, is very intentional. Yeah. So, so then what happens in Zechariah is you read Zechariah, uh, it. Chapter nine is really difficult to to sort through. Like, it's kind of apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. It's got this really strange language, this sort of end of the world language that the prophets use a lot to describe things that are not the end of the world, which I think is really important for us to recognize. That a lot of times is sort of, and you'll see it even here in Luke that that Jesus is going to talk about like uh, the sun and the moon and all these things. This is this is not exactly describing it could in various places it does describe the end of the world but on other occasions it's describing things that are happening in the middle of history to show that god is intervening directly right. so like in isaiah 13 isaiah 13 uses uh this kind of a classic demonstration of this end of the world language is used but he's describing the fall of babylon which has right. already happened yeah, so he's that's, using yeah, this right. end of the world language to describe the fall of Babylon to show 
that Babylon is not going to fall because the Medes and the Persians arise. Babylon is falling because God is destroying them. Mm-hmm. That he's the sovereign king of everything. So, so when you see like in Acts 2, um, Peter right. is going to make reference to Joel and he's going to use yep. that same end of the world language. Well, yep. what he's saying there is, and, and I think that Peter is making it very clear that Joel is being fulfilled right then and right, there. Right there, not in the future. The, right when there. the coming of the spirit is the sign of the arrival of God's kingdom, the arrival of the new age, the launching of this new mission that has been inaugurated in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he uses that end of the world language because he's saying God is here and we see it quite literally. God is here in the person of the Holy Spirit. So in Zechariah 9, it's the same thing. Yeah. And so in Zechariah 9, what starts to happen is that there's this very odd dance that's happening where it becomes unclear at points where the description is about God himself Mm. and where the description is about the king. Mm. And so it becomes a a great place for Jesus to, to, to embody what he's doing because when it becomes unclear, is this talking about the king? Is this talking about God? It, it, elaborates on something that was really important in the first century that, that, you know, that, that John really ex- exploits is that the mantra of the Jewish people in the first century was we have no King, but God. Mm. And at the end of the story in John, as yes. he's being betrayed, as Jesus is being betrayed by the Sadducees and Pharisees, they're going to make this explicit declaration. We have no King, but Caesar, mm. which gets to the heart of the, the matter. It does. And so here with this time of visitation, I, and I do think Matthew and Luke maybe bring it out in, in a different way, and maybe a little more explicitly in terms of his arrival at the temple, is that this time of the visitation is that God has come to you in the person of the king. The glory of God that departed from the temple is returning in the incarnate son of God, who is described in many ways in the New Testament as the glory of God. That he is coming God has returned to save his people, to redeem his people, to end their exile, to forgive their sins. And you've missed it. Yes, that's right. You just flat missed it. And so now the way of peace, the way of peace to God, the way of peace in the world, that's taken from you. You're going to face God's judgment because of what you've done to his, the one he sent, the best loved beloved son. We're going to see that in the parable later on. Uh, and you've missed the time of your visitation. I, essentially, I am the way that makes for peace. You've missed it. Judgment is coming, which then leads into, in the way Luke tells it, it, in a very truncated way, verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of, and then almost all of our translations say robbers. Yeah, talk, talk about that, please. So this is, and this leads into the bur- thing you're talking about earlier yeah so my house should be house of prayer uh it's kind of interesting honestly that some of the other gospels will say for all the nations because that's in the original quotation luke oddly leaves it out uh, and we don't have uh the the longer explanation of the story it's really short um he doesn't talk about how the people would use the temple as a shortcut like you can see in the background behind me it sort of sits in the middle of town and people would come in there uh, in the, the, I guess, to my left, the opposite of my left hand. So uh, the way you're seeing it to my right, um, 
and they would come in there, they would go out the other side uh, to get across town without having to walk around the outside wall. So using it as a shortcut, profaning it by, uh, Mark says both the buying and the selling and the trading of the money uh, because they wouldn't let, um, they wouldn't let the people use their regular coins in the temple. They would use Tyrian silver coins because they didn't have images on them. Mm. Uh, and also because the Romans were kind of notorious for shaving weight off of the coins because the mm. amount that the coins were worth was in the, the weight of the, the material. So, you know, th there are all kinds of sort of things going on there, but then you get to this den of robbers. And this is the thing that I think is really, really important. That, that word there, uh, the Greek word is leistes. It can be translated in about three different ways. It can be translated as robber, like it is in most of our translations. It can be translated as, as I'm looking at it, as a bandit. And, and then the last one is an insur as an insurrectionist. And yes. I think that's really important, sort of paving the way for what we see with Barabbas. I agree. Is that the, the thing we have to ask ourselves the question of is, would Romans... Would the Roman law, would the Roman government send to their death on a cross? Like the Roman writer Cicero said that, that crucifixion is so horrible, so awful, that it should be uh, removed from the eyes and ears of every Roman. Like this is not something we even need to think about. That's how gruesome and awful mm -hmm. this is. So would uh, the Romans send to death on a cross, even with what's going on with the religious leaders, someone who was just essentially accused of petty theft, no some way. type of robbery. The answer right. to that is no. I mean, the, the Romans are going to send folks to death, particularly death on the cross, the least humane way they could put someone to death, if you can even talk about it in those terms, to, to give this agonizing mocking, I would use the term again, public theater to show this is, and this is, I think gets to the point is they've made it into a place of revolution, a place of insurrection. So it was shocking to me when I was in seminary uh, to, to learn that, that in the hundred years before and the hundred years after, so that 200 year time frame with the life of Jesus in the middle from Josephus, I think is the main source, that th there were 18 folks mm -hmm. that roughly, give or take, that came to Jerusalem, claimed to be the Messiah, brought with them an army of sorts, and tried to bring in God's kingdom by force. Right. And all of them, without fail, were killed. And all of them used the temple as a symbol. And, and that is pad. the launching, the launching right. pad. So if you look uh, in uh, the, the picture here, in fact, it's, I did it kind of as a joke, but it actually can be helpful for us. Uh, let me flip it a little bit so I can, can point to the picture a little better. Sorry about that. Uh, That's let's all right. see here. So now the, I've kind of mirrored it in there and I can point to it a little better. I think if you look on this left-hand side. On the corner, you can see in the back, right back there, uh, in the back. So if you're looking at it with my left hand, like right where my hand is there in that corner, there, there's a fortress of Antonia is there. It's been built up uh, in the days of Herod. It's built there. And so what the Romans are using it for at this point is to have eyes and ears on the temple. So if you think about 
what happens in the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, when uh, Paul is in the temple, I think chapter 20, uh, he's, he's accused of bringing a Gentile from mm-hmm. Ephesus. They've seen him walking around out in town with the guy from Ephesus. He's accused of bringing him into that area of the temple right there that I just moved out of the way of where only Jews can go. And it creates a riot. They're beating Paul. You can see how quick they are to get in the temple. And a few years before this, Pilate, uh, in a a pretty uh, foolish move, um, he uh, brought Roman soldiers into the temple grounds, into this court of the Gentiles, the larger area that's around sort of where my head is, uh, he brought them in there and they came in with Roman banners, which have symbols mm-hmm. of the gods on them. This right. caused great uproar because insurrection is starting the temple. So if you come to Jerusalem and you want to start a revolution, you're going to start it right here. So they want to always have eyes on it to see what's going on, to keep their eyes on it. And so that also, by the way, should remind us that when we read about Palm Sunday and they're coming into town, they're watching. They're That's watching right. as Jesus makes his way up to the temple. And it sort of, I think, puts in a better historical perspective kind of the size of the crowd. Mm. This wouldn't have been kind of the massive throng, at least that I imagined it to be when I was growing up, that, that then leads to sort of the, the consternation about, well, how did all of these people who were walking him into Jerusalem then turn on him at the end? Right. Well, the right. reality is this yeah. was probably you know, 50 to 100 people with him that were lauding him as king rather than the throng of thousands that, that, that at least I envisioned as a kid, which then leads to, well, it's probably a different group of people that you've got saying crucify him, crucify him on Friday as yeah. opposed to the ones that are lauding him on, on Sunday. So they're, they're, they're saying you're the king. They're leading him into the temple. He goes in the temple. He offers himself to them as the king and nobody recognizes and so Luke doesn't tell us the story of the cursing of the fig tree. He gets to the point in a little bit of a different way. Mm-hmm. But with the cursing of the fig tree, with what we have here in his lament over Jerusalem that we read in 41 to 44 of chapter 19, is that what he's doing is he's cursing this place. That's right. What happens to the fig tree is going to happen to the temple. It's going to be destroyed. And, and this kind of reaches a crescendo and, and acts. You sort of see the overlapping with Stephen. Like he says, you've made this building into an idol. You've made this building into a visible representation of God rather than seeing God himself. Mm. So you're just as much an idolater as the Romans. Mm-hmm. It's just your idol is different. And I think it kind of reveals, honestly, uh, what what I think it was Calvin that said that the human heart is an idol factory. Like we're going right, to make yeah. idols. Of, uh, the, the key thing is for us to recognize what those idols are and to recognize that Jesus alone can be king. 